Jesus said some amazing things as he died on the cross, his last words. He forgave his tormentors. He promised salvation to a fellow sufferer. He expressed both the pain of separation from God and the serenity of entrusting himself into the Father's hands. All those words have deep and abiding significance for us, but none more so than the last. It is finished, which really means, I have finished it. This seventh word from the cross isn't a cry of relief, it's a cry of accomplishment. So let's dig into this right now. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And we've come now to the last word from the cross, at least the last word as we're ordering things. As we pointed out in an earlier program, there are really kind of three last words if you mm-hmm. take each gospel by itself. But putting them together, there's a traditional order. The last one that we're going to treat with is from John uh, chapter 19, once again, a word only recorded by John. And it's a very short one. In fact, in Greek, it's a single word. One word, yeah. Yep. Tatelestai. Uh, it is finished. It's done, completed, finalized. And here it is uh, from John chapter 19, beginning at the 28th verse. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So there it is from John. And if you, again, listen closely, you heard two of the last words of Jesus. The fifth word, I'm thirsty, or I thirst, which we treated in an earlier program. And then this last word uh, from John's Gospel, Tetelestai in Greek, it is finished. But the question is, what's finished? Right. The first thing we can say with great clarity is Jesus is not saying, oh, I'm finished. I'm washed up. I'm done. Yeah, right. I'm dead. I'm, the life has left me. No, not I am finished. It is finished. It is accomplished. Again, one word in the Greek, but we can tell from the conjugation of the verb that indeed it, it is finished. And so the question is, what? Is what's the it? What's right. the as we say in English grammar? What's the antecedent uh, to the word it? Yeah, to, to the what pronoun. does it refer back to? Exactly. And uh, another thing I think we can say it doesn't mean I'm finished. It doesn't mean simply my suffering is finished, yeah. or this ordeal is finally over, or whew, I've had it at last. As we sometimes say with people, don't we? Um, and often find comfort, especially when someone has suffered for a long time. Uh, a terrible death, maybe death from cancer, uh, you get to the point where death is a mercy. Death is a release. And finally, when they breathe their last, uh, the family and others who love that person turn to each other and say, well, at least it's over. Yeah. At least their suffering's we're over. We're very sad, but for her, right. we're relieved. Yeah. It doesn't mean that either. No, Jesus that's not what that. Jesus is saying. Um, this is much, much, much grander. This ties in, too, with, with the way that Jesus went to his death very knowingly and recognizing that this was the will of God, or, as Jesus says in various contexts, the cup. He had to drink. Mm, Yes, exactly. And I think that's one way to enter the meaning of this uh, final word from the cross is to think about the symbolism in the Gospels of the cup that Jesus talked about. He talked about it in the Garden of Gethsemane. So in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
you may recall that scene where Jesus kneels on the ground and prays in great desperation, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In John, it's slightly different. As Mm -hmm. they come to arrest Jesus, Jesus tells his disciple, Peter takes out his sword and starts hacking away and Mm -hmm. cuts cuts the ear off one of the servants. And Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? So this symbolic idea, the cup, what is that? And a lot of, well, it's certainly the suffering of Jesus and everything he's going to have to endure. Most scholars see this also as the cup of judgment, uh, that, that Jesus' death is the definitive sign that God couldn't just wink at sin. He couldn't just whisk sin away with a flip of his hand or a wave of his magic wand. Sin and evil had to be, and death itself as the scourge of sin and evil, had to be met head on. It had to happen this way for God to judge evil and make it punished yeah. and bring new life there thereby. So it's the cup of judgment, the bitter cup down to the last dregs of the cup that Jesus had to drink because he's taking on the sin of the world, and it's this bad. And somehow in dying, Jesus drains that cup to the very bottom. In doing so— this powerful act of love, he sets us free from any fear of punishment or judgment. The great preacher and hymn writer John Newton said of this that because Jesus has drained the cup of God's punishment, there's no punishment left for us, Mm -hmm. for you and me. We don't have to drink this cup. He drank it for us. And whatever we may experience in life of suffering isn't God punishing us, but it's simply part of the process of uh, the way he deals with us. It reminds me, too, of another incident in the Gospels when uh, the disciples, as they often were, I think maybe it was James and John in this case, are angling for power positions. They kind of want to be Jesus' right and left-hand man. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And the disciples say, sure, yeah, you bet, absolutely. They have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, And Jesus says, well, you'll have your own cup to drink someday. You'll suffer for me. But they can't drink the cup. No, not that same cup. They they didn't know what they were saying. Only Jesus can do this. And by doing that, he, as we just said, he accomplished his purpose, which – There are so, you know, there's a famous hymn called Christus Paradox, the paradox of Christ, the paradox of life coming from an instrument of death. And among the the many different paradoxes that come from the cross is that in dying, Jesus fulfilled what he what he needed to do, which is opposite how it usually goes. Yeah. When Martin Luther King Jr. was terribly assassinated before he was even 40, right. that didn't exactly accomplish his life's purpose, nor did the tragically early death of one of the greatest composers of all time, Mozart. Mozart right. <laughs> um, you don't yeah. die and say, oh, good, now now I've you know really done a good job here. No, it, and, and it cuts it short. Usually. Right. With people like that, we think, what a tragedy that yep. they died so young and what how the world was deprived of their ongoing life and work. But with Jesus, we never feel that. No. Uh, we never feel that he died too That's young. Right. I mean, you <laughs> right. You hear people say that. Oh, think of all the symphonies Mozart had left in him to write, you know, or John Lennon, who was also killed when he was 40, the, beat, the member of the Beatles. Oh, how many more great songs weren't still in him that we never got to hear? But you're right. Nobody ever says, oh. Jesus died on the cross. He probably had some more parables yeah. in him. Too bad we didn't hear more parables. <laughs> right. No, we're more saying miracles. No. <laughs> right. More no. stories. But no, this it did was it. his work to come and die. That's what he came to do. And at the climactic moment, he could say, It's finished. Yep. And that has uh, 
dramatic implications. Again, we, we said it a few minutes ago, Dave, what is the it exactly? And we're going to want to unpack that a little bit more because when we see what the it is of it is finished, uh, we're going to connect some really important big biblical dots and see what God's up to. And we'll start thinking about that more in just a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork Work. Today we're talking about Jesus' last word from the cross, as John records it, uh, the last of our series on Jesus' words from the cross. This uh, dramatic cry of accomplishment, of finishing his work as he died, uh, he claimed, it is finished. And even though this is a word from the cross, it's almost an Easter word, uh, a victory um, of triumph, uh, that, that Jesus knows that his work is finished. And, and we know, too, that interestingly, by the way, and this is mentioned in, in various of the Gospels, including Matthew, uh, that one of the things that happened when Jesus died, and again, we said these, there seemed to be at least three last, last words, and how to put them together can be a little tricky, but in Matthew's Gospel and some of the other ones, when he says his final word and breathes his last, we're told, and this is in Matthew 27, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mm. And uh, the Gospels make a big deal out of that, uh, and it's interesting to wonder why. Well, exactly. And you think about the symbolism of first the tabernacle as uh, Moses created it, and then later that was translated into stone, a more permanent building, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which though destroyed was then later rebuilt uh, during the time of the uh, return from exile in Babylon. So there were two rooms inside the temple, and they were separated by this ornate curtain woven Mm -hmm. And in the back room, the Holy of Holies, the Sanctus Sanctorum, originally was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in later years— The throne of God. Right, the very point of God's dwelling uh, with his people, on which sat the the so-called mercy seat, Mm -hmm. the cover uh, where the blood of atonement was applied on the Day of Atonement. So all of this suggesting that uh, God is— both with his people, but also somehow remote from his right. people. He's inaccessible. Right. He's behind the curtain. Sin will always keep us at a remove from God. So long as we are sinful people who have not been redeemed, we can't get to God. We have no direct access. Indeed, as you said, only once a year was even the high priest allowed to go on the other side of that curtain. But now something dramatic has happened. And, you know, Matthew was one of the gospel writers to make, and Mark as well, I think, make it very, very clear that the curtain was torn from top to bottom to let you know who did the tearing. It came from above. It was, you know, symbolically God tore that down now because what Jesus accomplished, it is finished. It is accomplished. What Jesus accomplished was the, finally the reunion 
of God and humanity, which ties together really the whole of Scripture. I heard just recently the eminent New Testament scholar N.T. Wright Mm -hmm. from England speaking about this, and he said, you know, it's such a shame that in the church, many people reduce the death of Jesus to say, well, Jesus died so I can go to heaven. Just me. You know, he'll take me to heaven, which will be out of this world, by the way, a lot of people think. And and N.T. Wright says, no, that shrinks it down so much. What Jesus did was accomplish what God had started to do even in the Garden of Eden when God wanted to live with Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. He built a temple for him to live in. That didn't work so good. And so then uh, in Exodus, he builds first a tabernacle, which is a temporary tent, and then later uh, the temple. But these are all temporary steps along the way. God and humanity haven't gotten back together again like God wanted in the Garden of Eden. Now they do. And so all of Scripture, and you get finally to the end of Revelation when the new heaven and the new earth and the dwelling of God comes down from heaven to this earth. We don't go to heaven. Heaven comes down here, and now the dwelling of God is with us. They have no need of a temple, for Jesus is their living temple, which is a theme in John's gospel. So this isn't just Jesus died so I can go to heaven. This is all of Scripture. It does include that. It includes me being with, right, but this is all of Scripture being fulfilled. It's a cosmic work that he has finished. And in his death, yes, the way is open for us to be reunited with God, to be reconciled with God. That's one great New Testament word. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or trespasses against them, says the apostle. So his death dealt with sin. His death opened the way for us to come home to God, yes, to go to heaven when we die, but also for heaven to come here in a new heaven and a new earth at the last day. It's the victory of God over the forces of death and evil and sin and hell. It's the beginning of a new age. It's not, yes, it's finished, but it's also just starting on the cross. So we're never going to plumb the depths of all that Jesus' death accomplished But it's great to uh, try at least and Mm -hmm. and to begin to stretch our imagination to see what this tremendous finished work of Christ. And incidentally, the fact that it's finished means there's nothing for us to add. Exactly. He has done it all. He has offered the one sacrifice. Hebrews makes it so clear Mm -hmm. that this sacrifice is the last sacrifice, the only sacrifice that's needed. Christ doesn't have to be offered up again and again and again. Once for all, Hebrews says, when he had made satisfaction for sins, he sat down uh, in heaven. And that's, uh, I think that's the meaning of that phrase that we confess in the creed, that he's seated at the right hand of God. His work is done. Yep. And barbaric, though I think some people in our world today, or maybe people all through history have thought this way, but barbaric, though some might regard it, It all happens through the shedding of blood, which is a Bible-wide theme. It goes back to the sacrifices in Israel. Why the shedding of blood? Well, the life of us is in our blood that the biblical writers knew and believed. And for life finally to make a comeback, for death finally to be defeated, blood has to be spilled, sprinkled, as it were, uh, you know, on on the mercy seat as it was in Israel. Um, And again, the book of Hebrews does more with that temple, holy of holies, high priest imagery than any book of the Bible. It's rich, rich, rich material in Hebrews, but it had to happen this way because that's how serious this is, life for life. And now we have life because of Jesus' death and, of course, his resurrection as well. So all this talk about blood in the New Testament, the blood of Christ, 
points to the truth that in dying for us, in shedding his blood, Jesus somehow cleanses us from sin, he purifies us, he brings us back to God, he makes new life possible, he sets up the condition for God to once again dwell with humans and ultimately renew the whole creation. But, but, (laughs) one other important New Testament theme I think that we have to stress is that we need to respond to this. Mm -hmm. This is a wonderful gift The work that Jesus has done on our behalf is finished, but our work isn't finished. There's something we need to do, and the New Testament makes it clear that we need to respond to this in faith. We need to entrust ourselves to him and to what he's done. So Paul, uh, writing to the Romans, says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus— whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. So that's the deal. Whenever this story is told and retold, whenever the death of Christ is spelled out, it's as though God is putting him forward again for us to receive as our sacrifice. Faith is the gift God gives us that helps us to tie in with the gift. It's like we, we can't access what Jesus did when he said it is finished until we're given the gift of faith, and that then becomes like a, a pipeline through which all the cleansing waters of baptism flow into us. And so it is something to which we need to respond in faith. And as you said, Dave, what faith tells us is that Jesus' death isn't the end, it's just the beginning. And we'll want to think a little bit more about that as we close our program in just a moment. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged FamilyFire.com. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And we're looking at this last word of victory and of accomplishment from Jesus. Uh, one one little word in the Greek language right. in which the New Testament was written, tetelestai, it is finished. Uh, Dave, you and I took Greek once upon a time. Yeah. And uh, so we remember this is the perfect tense of the verb. And the tense is important here because a perfect tense in Greek signifies the ongoing result of a past action. So I remember, I still remember my Greek professor teaching us this. What we could really translate this word as is, it is in the state of having been completed or having been finished. In other words, uh, the results still flow from this. Christ did this once and for all on the cross. Yep. He's done. No more need for sacrifice. No more blood needs to be shed. Nothing we can add to it. Nothing that we pay. But the consequences continue to flow. It is in the state of having been completed. And that reality means that he's won. He's He's the victor. And therefore, that looking into the past means all that's been wrong has been fixed, but it rolls forward into the future, that ongoing uh, you know, sense of the perfect tense of the verb, that it's going to keep rolling on until 
all is made new. Yeah, I uh, remember a story from history that always kind of strikes me as having some similarities with this word from the cross. It's the story of the Battle of Marathon. Mm -hmm. In 490 BC, the Greeks defeated a, a great Persian army in one of the most important victories of their history. And uh, they sent a, a soldier back to Athens with the news. His name was Pheidippides. Uh, the distance of the battlefield at Marathon happened to be 26.2 miles. So if you've seen those 26.2 stickers on cars, you mm -hmm. know, people bragging that they run a marathon. Well, the original marathon was run by Pheidippides. He ran all the way after fighting in the battle. He g came into the city of Athens after 26 miles. He gasped out a single word, Nicomen, we won, and he dropped dead. Right. And, and in a sense, Jesus' cry is like that, a single word that says, we won. I, it's finished. God has done it. Right. God has conquered. Uh, and, and there is the, again, we talked earlier about the paradoxes, the seeming things that can't go together, the victory of the cross. Christians have been talking about this for 2,000 years. The victory of the cross. You know, you never hear people say, oh, the victory of the electric chair or, you know, the, the goodness of, of, of the hangman's noose. No, only on the cross uh, and only on Jesus' cross. Right. right. Can we combine the words victory and cross because that is where he won the victory? And, of course, it will be confirmed. But one of the things that we often forget, by the way, on Easter, Jesus rose victorious from the grave, right? But often we forget that what the Father was doing, among other things, what the Father was doing by raising Jesus from the dead on Easter morning was putting his stamp of approval on what Jesus had done, including dying on the cross. Um, God was not just saying, see, that wasn't really the end. That wasn't so bad, was it? No, by raising Jesus in God's own power, he was saying that cross was necessary. It did win the, win the victory, and the proof is that he is alive again. I heard somebody once say to a very popular TV preacher who always preached about possibility thinking and, and, and you know, self-improvement, somebody once said, well, how do you square all this you know, prosperity stuff with Jesus? Didn't he die a terrible death on the cross? And the TV preacher said, oh, like all successful people, Jesus had his setbacks, but on Easter, he put that all behind him, right? No, God is not sweeping away the cross by raising Jesus from the dead. He's validating it. Right. And that means that all Jesus' promises can be counted on, too. So all the other words that he spoke from the cross, the promise of eternal life to the penitent thief, the forgiveness of his enemies, the sense that he has paid the price, it's all validated and vindicated by what happened on Easter morning. And the fact is, as the angel said at the empty tomb, look, he's not here, he is risen. There is a direct line between these two words. He is in a state of having finished the work. Right. The work has been completed. He is now in a state of having risen. It's ongoing and eternally valid and significant. And you read that all through the New Testament. Here are some familiar words that many of us know well from the Apostle Paul, from Colossians 2. Jesus was erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So all the enemies that we've ever had, the devil, his hosts, evil, darkness, Jesus made a public spectacle of it and ended it by dying himself. Right, and the proof is that he was raised again. 
as the New Testament says, God raised him from the dead and declared him in that very act to be the Son of God with power. But though the victory's been won, uh, the battle isn't over yet. As we all know, we live and still struggle with many setbacks and suffering and pain ourselves. But the promise is that ultimately, as Jesus comes back one day to finish and consummate the work of salvation, and God wipes every tear from our eyes, and uh, we dwell with him forever. That's the hope that the gospel proclaims. And we are profoundly grateful for the, the work of Jesus, his suffering, his death, and his ultimate victory on Easter morning. It is the good news that the church has been proclaiming for 2,000 years. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Risen indeed. Well, thanks for joining our Groundwork Conversation. I'm Dave Bast with Scott Jose, and we'd like to know how we can help you continue digging deeper into Scripture. Just visit groundworkonline.com and tell us what you'd like to hear next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney.